This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Good morning, happy new year, and welcome to Face the Nation. For this first day of 2023, we want to look forward, offering the outlook ahead on the economy, foreign policy, and the environment, taking advantage of at least one quiet Sunday here in Washington before the new Congress convenes later this week. We began with a look at the domestic economic forecast and the chief economist for Bank of America, Michael Gapin. He's here. Happy New Year to you, and it's good to have you in person. Happy New Year as well. Thank you for having me on. You know, a majority of voters uh, polled by the Wall Street Journal say that the economy is going to look and feel worse in 2023. Uh, what is your forecast? So I think that's probably true. I think we're in a situation where the risk of recession is high, may not be a deep and prolonged one, but we're in a situation where the economy has recovered very rapidly from, from COVID, and it's come with a lot of inflation. And the Federal Reserve is trying to slow down the economy to bring inflation down. And in the past, more often than not, that's coincided with some sort of recession in the U.S. economy and the U.S. labor market. It's not baked in. It's not for certain. We may be able to avoid it. Uh, but I would agree that the outlook by most people who sit in the position that I do think 2023 could be a difficult year for the U.S. So we may be able to avoid recession, yes. or it could be mild. That's right. In this particular case, I, I think it, it doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be prolonged. So we're currently at an inflation rate of about 7.1%. How long do we have to stomach higher prices? When does it feel better for the average American? The evidence suggests we're already past peak inflation. Right now, the trajectory is a, a more favorable one. It will probably take two to three years to get inflation back down to levels that we knew prior to the pandemic. In other words, low, stable, um, and something we didn't necessarily talk about because it wasn't forefront on our mind. But it may take another 18 to 24 months, maybe 36 months to, to fully um, get us back to a situation where inflation doesn't seem to be as pressing as it is today. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was recently quoted in an op-ed that she, she penned 
as saying times can be tough, but Americans are tougher. From the depths of the crisis, we have bounced back. And the president's economic plan has bolstered the U.S. economy's resilience to today's global challenges. So that's the political plan, mm-hmm. the fiscal spending that Congress can can help them out with. Do you think on that front we are on a steady path forward? The change that we've seen from, say, the, the fiscal policy side of the U.S. economy is one where industrial policy is creeping back in again, where we're trying to align our public sector interests with our private, se- private sector opportunities, the CHIP Act and protecting the supply lines uh, for for chips, for example, is is for one of those. That's right. Mm-hmm. For semiconductors, for which is a, a hugely important process uh, for electronics and autos globally. And second, the Inflation Reduction Act has many components of a clean energy policy. So I think from a medium term perspective, we're seeing greater alignment again with political objectives, public sector objectives, and then private sector opportunity. We haven't done that in the United States for several decades. In your newsletter, Bank of America's economists admit to to being wrong about 2022. It happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so were the central banks, as you all point out. Central banks are about six months late in hiking interest rates. The Fed stands out like a sour thumb in largely dismissing the hottest labor market in many decades. So if if all the experts were wrong, um, why should the public trust that you're on the right path now? Public policy planned for the worst, hoped for the best with the pandemic and planned for the worst. So we didn't get the worst outcomes of of the pandemic, right? Some of those that were predicted early on. But we put a lot of fiscal policy support in. We kept monetary policy easy and interest rates low. And we just we kind of got too much of a good thing coming out. So now we're just we're course correcting that. So it may mean some pain for the economy in the short run. But if the Fed is successful at bringing inflation down, that means it's a very good outlook for the U.S. economy over the medium term. But pain in the economy, I mean, let's let's say what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's likely job cuts. Likely job losses, um, yes. There are 6 million unemployed people right now with a jobless rate about 3.7%. That's a very strong jobs market. Right. Um, you, where do you think that jobless rate is going to go? How much pain are you preparing us for? Right. Part of the problem in the in the labor market right now is um, lack of available labor supply. We do think we're about three and a half to four million workers short of where we were prior to the pandemic because of things like lack of immigration and early retirements and so forth. So this is why if, if we want to, re, you know, reduce a hot labor market, cool it down a bit, it, it may involve some job losses. It could come in places like housing. The housing sector is, is retrenching. It could come in manufacturing. And it may come in in professional and business services and finance and and other sectors like that. For consumers, when the Federal Reserve keeps rates higher for an extended period of time, they see the impact in their credit card statement or in the mortgage rate. So if someone's looking at the housing market, wants to go out and buy a home right now, do they also have to wait the two to three years you referenced for inflation to come down before they feel like they can afford it? Uh, well, housing is under a tremendous affordability shock right now. As you know, home prices nationally are still up about 40 percent relative to pre-pandemic times. And it's a, bu- a bubble. Uh, it, well, I... Jerome not, Powell said it was a bubble. Well, OK, I, I would disagree <laughs> with, with that. Um, 
And mortgage rates are high. They're, they were over 7%. They're now above 6%. So, yes, I think the answer, home prices are starting to come back down. But, yes, it will take time to cool down the housing market and return affordability. Is it, is it two years? I, you know, I don't know. But um, it, it, could be 12, it could be 12 months, could be 24 months. Yes, the, the housing market currently is, is in its own recession at present. Activity has really slowed down, particularly as mortgage rates rose. I want to end on a positive note, of course. if we can. I want to ask where you see sort of the best news in 2023. What makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is not just in the U.S., but globally, central banks have gotten the message on inflation. They reacted very quickly. Inflation is now on, on a downward trend, and we think that will continue. Mm-hmm. In the other area, I would say is I'm still very optimistic about the long-run prospects for the U.S. economy. And in that regard, what I mean is in a world where you know we're pulling back from globalization a bit and we're fracturing mm-hmm. a, a bit, I think the positives of the U.S. actually become more positive. The U.S. becomes a better place for investment, returns to capital, uh, and the dollar's strength in the world system will likely be preserved. So in some ways, I think our positives become more accentuated uh, in the current environment. So we've got a problem with inflation now. We will likely risk recession in 2023. But beyond that, I think it's still a very positive outlook for the U.S. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your outlook. The global economy also saw some serious turbulence in 2022. We spoke with the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, as she wrapped up year-end business at the IMF here in Washington. China has been this hub of cheap manufacturing for the world. We are all so dependent on it. But right now, it looks like COVID cases are exploding as they start peeling back those zero COVID restrictions. What will that mean for the global economy long and short term? Uh, In the short term, bad news. Uh, China has slowed down dramatically in 2022 because of this tight zero COVID policy. For the first time in 40 years, China's growth in 2022 is likely to be at or below global growth. And looking into next year, for three, four, five, six months, the relaxation of COVID restrictions would mean bushfire COVID cases uh, throughout China. I was in China last week in a bubble in a city where there is zero COVID, but that is not going to last once the Chinese people start traveling. They don't have an effective vaccine right now. The, the vaccinations uh, fall behind. They have not uh, worked on antiviral treatments and how that can be offered to people. And so they will go through this tough time. If they stay the course over time, they would be able to catch up with the rest of the world. But for the next couple of months, it would be tough uh, for China. And uh, the impact on Chinese growth would be negative. The impact on the region would would be negative. The impact on global growth would be negative. You said that you fear that we are sleepwalking into a world that is poorer and less secure because of a split in the global economy between the US and China. What do you mean by that? The way we have operated created excessive dependency in 
uh, global chains. We were too focused on cost. How can we make products cheaper? And COVID and then the senseless war uh, Russia started against Ukraine have shown that this is not enough. We have to think of the security of supplies. Mm -hmm. And that means diversify the sources of products that make the economy function well, lifting up the level of cost. But we shouldn't go beyond. One of your IMF researchers gave a pretty dire prediction. Overall, this year's shocks will reopen economic wounds that were only partially healed post-pandemic. Mm -hmm. In short, the worst is yet to come. And for many people, 2023 will feel like a recession. Mm -hmm. What do uh, we need to brace for? For most of the world economy, this is going to be a tough year, tougher than the year we leave behind. Why? Because the three big economies, US, EU, China, are all slowing down simultaneously. Uh, the US is most resilient. The US may avoid the recession. We see the labor market remaining quite strong. This is, however, mixed blessing because if the labor market is very strong, the Fed may have to keep interest rates tighter for, for longer to bring inflation down. The EU very severely hit by the war in uh, uh, Ukraine. Half of the European Union will be in recession next year. China is going to slow down uh, this year further. Next year would be a tough year for China. Mm -hmm. And that translates into uh, negative trends globally. When we look at the emerging markets and developing economies, there the picture is even uh, direr. Why? Because on top of everything else, they get hit by high interest rates and by uh, the appreciation of the dollar. For those economies that have high level of debt, this is a devastation. I want to make sure I get to Ukraine. President Zelensky said they need $55 billion in foreign support next year. He expects $20 billion from the IMF. Is he going to get it? We are working on providing support for uh, Ukraine. We have assessed the needs of Ukraine to range somewhere between 3 and $5 billion a month. What Putin did with destroying critical infrastructure in Ukraine, this is horrific. And it means that in the next months, the country would be more on the high end of this range because it is put in an awful position to have to restore access to electricity, to heat, to water. Ukraine has proven to be remarkably resilient. The Ukrainian economy is functioning. Pensions are being paid when there is bombardment, restoration of uh, uh, energy, water, heat is done uh, very uh, quickly. And uh, we see revenues collected in Ukraine in a very disciplined uh, manner to support uh, the So the government's not the going country. to collapse. The government is very well functioning under incredibly difficult circumstances. No, they're not going to collapse. And another thing that, that is so remarkable is Actually, the world has proven to be more resilient than we feared a year in the beginning of the year. We look at the 
response to the energy shock in Europe. Mm -hmm. And Europe is moving towards independence from Russia decisively. Yes, there will be a tough winter. Maybe the next one would, would be even tougher. But freedom from dependence on Russia yeah. is coming. How do you describe the state of U.S. economics and politics? The U.S. economy, remarkably resilient. Uh, Decision-making in the U.S., uh, because of the um, uh, way the um, political set is uh, at the moment, it is more difficult. But nonetheless, uh, the U.S. has taken some very important steps that are helping to the, the U.S. economy. But I do hope that the U.S. is not going to slip into recession, despite all these uh, risks. Uh, we expect one-third of the world economy to be in recession. And yes, uh, as you said, even countries that are not in recession, it would feel like recession for countries of, of millions of people. But if that resilience of the labor market in the U.S. holds, the U.S. would help the world to get through a very difficult year. Madam Managing Director, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Our full interview with Kristalina Gorgeva is available on our website and our YouTube channel. We'll be back in one minute. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. For a look at what's ahead on the foreign policy front, we're joined by the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan. CBS News national security contributor, Michael Morell. Former Obama administration undersecretary of defense for policy, Michelle Flournoy, and former Trump administration national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster, who joins us from Palo Alto. It's good to have all of you here. Um, you know, February 24th, 2022 was a wake up call for the world on the national security front. And Ambassador Sullivan, I know you were posted to Moscow at the time. European nations really didn't believe the United States this was going to happen, and then it did. What was that like? We knew it was going to happen. We'd been predicting it for months. I'd spoken to Secretary Blinken just a few days before on February 19th, and he asked me what the mood was, and I said it felt like August 31st, 1939, uh, a world leader was going to launch an aggressive war on the European continent with unknown consequences. I then thought, geez, I hope uh, I haven't overstated this. But we were very confident in our assessment about what he was going to do. The only question was when. But what was so surreal as a reporter was that all of our allies 
were doubting that Vladimir Putin would do this. Yeah. I spent a lot of time talking to uh, fellow ambassadors in Moscow, the U.S. business community in Moscow. They said, oh, you're, 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 you're chicken little. The sky is falling. Absolutely not. This is irrational. Putin would never do it. Those same people on February 25th were texting me on their way to the airport saying goodbye. Uh, I was right. To date, sanctions have not stopped Vladimir Putin, and he is making clear that this war is going to continue, and that has global ramifications. Absolutely. I think in 2023, we're likely to see minimal Russian gains on the military battlefield, but more of Putin's spoiler campaign, where he's using missiles and drones to take out civilian infrastructure, target electricity, target water supplies, really trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people, um, while also hoping that Europe has a very cold, dark winter and the, the energy prices, the risk of a recession. He's seeking to break the will of the Ukrainians and of NATO. I don't think he's going to be successful. I think in 2023, we're either going to see some kind of escalation on Putin's side and or uh, possibly both um, some entry into some negotiations if if in fact the Western and Ukrainian will holds and Putin realizes he can't actually achieve his objectives. So he wants to put lipstick on a pig and declare victory somehow. Uh, General McMaster, uh, Vladimir Putin just recently visited a, a military outpost for the first time with his generals. Some have read that as an indication that he is he is doubling down. What do you see happening here? Some Ukrainian generals are forecasting a Russian offensive could begin as soon as January. I think that's likely to be the case, Margaret, but it's going to fail. I mean, Putin is is in denial. He's a man who's always been obsessed, right, obsessed with restoring Russia to national greatness. And he fancied himself as the new czar presiding over an expanding Russian empire. Well, he's failed utterly, but he's increasingly isolated. You know, Putin, he's kind of a street thug. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a bully and a coward at the same time. I think now we, you know, we have agency, Margaret. We can we can stop meeting out assistance. We can give the Ukrainians what they need to protect their population and their infrastructure, and to sustain a counteroffensive to regain at least the territories taken since the renewed offensive in, on February 24th. Mike Morrell, um, I, I want to know what you think the red line is. From what I hear, it's Crimea. That if the Ukrainians tried to retake that area, that that might lead to the escalation uh, that you were just referring to. What are your thoughts on that and the contact that the CIA is having with Russian intelligence? So Crimea is the most important piece for Putin, right, in terms of what he's taken since 2014. Um, but I'm not sure what that escalation could look like. I mean, he doesn't have a lot left from a military perspective. His troops, as a matter of fact, are digging in to defensive positions in eastern Ukraine right now. I'm not sure what he can do, what he has left in his bag, if the Ukrainians were to grow into Crimea, and I would not dissuade them from doing that. Director Burns did have contact. He met face-to-face -face with his uh, Russian counterpart. I mean, the intelligence channels are, are open. The, they're open, but when you hear escalation, people fear Vladimir Putin's nuclear arsenal. What is the probability of it being used? So I hope that part of the communication, right, between Director Burns and his, his counterparts in Russia are, here is what the United States will do 
if you were to use a nuclear weapon or biological weapons on the battlefield. And I hope that we've sent a message that our response would be significant and consequential. What is significant? look like? I think what it looks like is U.S. forces attacking Russian forces inside Ukraine. I think that would force Vladimir Putin to think twice. I think the international dimension is important here. I mean, Putin is pretty isolated, but you've had the prime minister of India come out and say, we don't want to see nuclear weapons used. You've had Xi Jinping, probably Putin's closest ally, come out and, and be very clear that nuclear weapons should not be used. So I think Putin would also find him incredibly isolated, not only from the West, but from much of the you know, international community as well. Ambassador Sullivan, does Putin care? That he's isolated? We made the same arguments to him to not invade Ukraine, that he'd be isolated, that the consequences would be devastating. That turned out to be true. 141 countries condemned and deplored the uh, the invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia in the General Assembly uh, just after it occurred. He doesn't care. He's got his plan. He is going to regather the Russian lands. His response would be, you know, Peter the Great didn't care what uh, what other leaders thought. Uh, Peter the Great did what he needed to do to gather the Russian lands, this mythic, in some sense, in his own mind, Russian empire that he wants to restore. He's messianic. He doesn't care. Well, that's terrifying. Um, I want to take a very quick break because we have so many more national security issues uh, to continue to talk about. We'll be back with more of our panel. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. And we continue our conversation now with our foreign policy panel. Um, H.R. McMaster, General McMaster, uh, I want to ask you uh, from a military perspective. We heard the CIA director describe a full-fledged military partnership between Russia and Iran. What does this look like? Well, I think where it heads next is support for Russia's war-making machine more broadly. I think you're going to see missiles. You already have reports of Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps trainers and assemblers of, uh, of these drones. And I, I think what we're recognizing is that these problem sets that we're facing with the, the theocratic dictatorship in Iran and the revanchist hypernationalist Putin, they're connected to each other. 
and they're connected to China. So I, I think we, we are hopefully now in full recognition that we are in really consequential competitions with authoritarian regimes who are, are hostile to us. And, and we have to respond much more effectively than we responded uh, in the past. And that's, that's a broad range of, I think, preparations for potential military conflict so we can deter a widening of the war. But there's also very significant economic and diplomatic aspects of these interconnected problems. One of the things you're saying there is recognize that the attempt to broker a nuclear deal with Iran is dead. It's a pipe dream. You know, I mean, it's trying to revive something that is completely dead. And I couldn't believe it, Margaret, as, as we were supplicating to the Iranian regime as they're intensifying their proxy war in the region and attacking some of our, you know, of our, our long-standing partners there. And I think we lost a lot of ground in, in the Middle East because of, we're chasing this pipe dream of trying to revive this, this nuclear uh, agreement. And if we didn't, what would happen is we'd give Iran a pass on, on the destructive effect the dictatorship has had on the Iranian economy. If we're going to be in the business of making predictions, I think the chances are quite high uh, of a significant conflict in the Middle East, maybe entailing an, an Israeli strike on, uh, on Iran's nuclear program. But Michelle Florida, do you agree with that assessment? The real risk is that in 2023, they will acquire enough material and highly enriched nuclear material to build a bomb. Israel has long articulated that as a red line, that that is an unacceptable condition for them to have, uh, to, to coexist with. And then the decision that places on the president, the U.S. president's desk, do we support them? Do we stand back? What, what happens? And do we find ourselves in an escalating situation with Iran in the Middle East? And, Mike, the intelligence community has not determined that Iran actually will make a nuclear weapon. It's just that they're giving themselves the possibility to do so at a future date. The judgment has always been that what the Iranians want is to get to the threshold, mm -hmm. right, to have all the pieces and be able to put them together quickly. Um, right now, they have enough fissile material enriched to 60 percent for four bombs, and they could get to 90 percent, which, which is what is required for a weapon, in a matter of weeks. So in terms of fissile material piece, they're very, very close. Does the regime, which has withstood many popular protests, withstand what's happening in the streets, which is unique with these uh, protests that were started yeah. by young women? Yeah. I think you have to look at the current protest in the context of a series of protests that have occurred since 2017. They've all had different causes, but the one thing they have in common is a growing alienation of the young people from the regime and a growing group of people who want a more normal life and a less rigid life. But at the same time, there's a large number of Iranians who support the regime. 18 million people voted for the current president, who's a hardliner. So I don't think that we're going to see regime change unless there's an incident that takes us in a different direction. It is so fascinating that the dynamic is there, that it's, that it's women who started this round of protests. And it makes me think, Michelle, of um, time and again— as expected, it is the young women who are paying the price for what's happening in Afghanistan following the withdrawal of the United States. Do you buy the argument that that choice to withdraw factored in, in any way, to Russia and China's assessment that the U.S. was in decline? It's one brick in a wall that they've been building for quite some time that has, that has many bricks, which is why it's so important that we need to invest in our alliances, really 
um, demonstrate our credibility when we make foreign policy commitments and so forth. I actually would give the administration some credit for that in terms of pulling NATO together after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, building stronger partnerships in Asia to try to deter and counterbalance China. Are you optimistic that those alliances in the West will actually remain solid? Because there is an argument that if Vladimir Putin hadn't bombed Kiev and terrified European leaders, that that they wouldn't be united. That is not just diplomacy, it was actual fear. But we, we are where we are. And I think the NATO alliance and, and the US-EU relationship, they have found their purpose again. There's a tremendous amount of transatlantic unity that I think is quite solid. I also think as Beijing overplays their hand, that actually bolsters um, our, our alliances and our partnerships in the region. But we have to play our cards well and mm -hmm. seriously compete, not only diplomatically, but shoring up deterrence militarily, competing economically, technologically, keeping our edge, making the right investments at home. Ambassador Sullivan, you're not at the State Department anymore, so you can speak freely. How much of the withdrawal, how it was executed, and the agreement with the Taliban is responsible for shaping the perception of weakness of the West? I completely agree with Michelle that the Russians, uh, Beijing, they will use any misstep by the United States, real or imagined, against us in their, in their false narrative. Unfortunately, in this case, we did make a major misstep, I think, uh, particularly in how we implemented the, uh, the withdrawal. There's no doubt in my mind that it, it, it factored in, at least in some way, in the Russians' calculation about uh, the, our strength, uh, our ability to convince allies and partners to oppose what the Russians were doing, our credibility. Did it ultimately uh, turn out to be the case? No. As with so many things, Putin was wrong about that, too. Mike, um, after the fall of Kabul, you were on this program and you correctly forecast that the Taliban knew where al-Qaeda's leader was inside Afghanistan. Right. Um, so I'm wondering what your thought is about where the emerging terror threat is now. So al-Qaeda is a problem that needs to be watched in Afghanistan. The bigger problem in Afghanistan at the moment is ISIS. They are increasingly recruiting from neighboring countries, and those individuals are coming in where they're getting training from ISIS. And the concern is that they might leave Afghanistan, go back to their home countries, and conduct attacks against Western interests, think embassies. Um, the, bigger, the bigger terrorism problem is actually in Africa, all the way from Somalia, all the way to, to, to West Africa, where you've got both al-Qaeda affiliates and you've got ISIS affiliates. They have control huge swaths of territory. Um, they've conducted primarily local attacks so far, but at some point, Western embassies, Western military bases in both Africa and possibly in Europe could become targets. And if we're going to make a prediction for 2023, I'd say we're going to see a terrorist attack against a Western interest somewhere in the world. Well, that's terrifying. Um, it's sobering. It's a reminder that declaring victory was too early. Terrorism has always waxed and waned. It has always gone up and down, and I think it's, it's starting to bounce back again. Um, General McMaster, uh, do you agree with that assessment that the emergent threat is coming out of Africa? 
I, I do, but it's also coming out of of, of Afghanistan. And it's also coming out of uh, of the Middle East uh, still, and and ISIS in in Syria has not been defeated. And the main lesson from from 9/11 is that threats, jihadist threats that develop abroad, can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. So sustained engagement through partners, like the partners we abandoned. In, in Afghanistan uh, are, is really critical to our own safety and, and security. I want to transition to the other looming threat that you hear the administration saying it will turn its eye towards in the new year, and that is China. Michelle Flournoy, where do you begin to try to de-escalate? Well, I think there is a desire to sort of right the apple cart. That said, neither side is going to change its fundamental interests, and those interests are in many ways in conflict. So there is a competition ongoing, and it's economic, it's technological, it's informational, it's political, it's military. I think the real name of the game in 2023 is shoring up deterrence. I don't think President Xi wants to move on Taiwan. He's got, you know, COVID to deal with. He's got a youth unemployment problem to deal with. He's got all kinds of domestic um, challenges. And I think he'd prefer to take Taiwan using economic and political coercion, ultimately. But he has instructed his military, be ready by 2027. So we've got the next few years to really make sure that he cannot have confidence in his ability to succeed militarily. So that means we have a lot um, of investment to do alongside investing in the drivers of our economic competitiveness, our technological competitiveness as well. Ambassador Sullivan, how does uh, Secretary Blinken approach this sort of trying to defrost this frozen relationship? We're not going to do this alone. We just saw the Japanese government announcing its new national uh, security and mm -hmm. defense strategy, significantly increasing its defense budget. Uh, our European allies and partners becoming more forthright about the threat that they see, the challenges they see from uh, from China. And I want to get to General McMaster, because I know you spend a lot of time on thinking about China. How do you see it? It's a grave threat. I think Xi Jinping means what he says, right? I think we have to be careful not to mirror image, not to fall into the same traps we did with Vladimir Putin of confirmation bias and optimism bias. Xi Jinping has made quite clear in his statements that he's going to make, from his perspective, China whole again by subsuming Taiwan. And the preparations are underway. So I think what is important is what, what Michelle said, deterrence. But good old-fashioned deterrence by denial. I mean, hard power matters. And I think we are underinvested in defense in the United States. China has become increasingly aggressive, not only from an economic and financial perspective and a wolf warrior diplomacy perspective, but physically uh, with, with, with its military. And what's really disturbing is I think Xi Jinping is preparing the Chinese people for war. In some of his speeches, he said, well, for us to restore China to national greatness, it's going to take some, some sacrifices. So I think we have to take it very seriously and act to, to extend really our, 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 our power. We talk a lot about relying on our allies and then maybe if we take a step back, the allies will do more. I think actually the opposite is the case. If Americans just do a little bit more, many of our allies will follow suit and bolster their defense capabilities and, and capacity as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We now want to go to Ben Tracy, Senior National and Environmental Correspondent out in Los Angeles, and welcome Kevin Book, an energy analyst and currently the Managing Director of Clearview Energy Partners. Ben, I want to start with you because I don't want to just admire the problem. I want to talk about how to plan for what's ahead and what is being done. And I know out in California, you've had for a long time concern about drought in the West. Then you have these predictions from NASA about flooding here in the East, really at record levels. So so what is happening? What do people need to plan for? Well, when we talk about climate change, you're basically talking about extremes, right? So the extremes get more extreme. So as you said, out here in the West, we're talking about hotter and drier, and that's created this 23-year-long mega drought that we're suffering through. And then in the East, as you mentioned, there's flooding. And so you're seeing when you get these rainstorms, they're often kind of supercharged, uh, and you're getting more flooding out of that. Out here in the West, the real plan is how do you kind of forecast and deal with water supplies when you're talking about hotter and drier as the long-term trend. So when you get more rain and less snow, you have less snowpack up in the mountains, and that is creating this crisis out here with reservoirs, with the Colorado River, uh, and that's really impacting millions of people when it comes to the water supply. So it's hard to plan for, but you now have the federal government coming out here in the West and saying, okay, states, you got to get together and figure out how you're going to use this water supply, or we're going to start imposing some pretty significant cuts on you if you don't do it yourselves. But at the federal level, Ben, we saw this historic investment, $369 billion as part of this Inflation Reduction Act. And the argument that all of this was ultimately supposed to alleviate climate change, but near term, it's really an investment in green energy. What difference is it going to make? It is a huge investment, and it could make a huge difference. The analysis of the bill shows that this really could get us to about a 40% cut in U.S. emissions by the year 2030. So that's, that's huge. And so much of that comes from these investments in the power grid and in renewable energy. And in fact, the International Energy Agency came out and revised their forecast and said that the, that transition is actually accelerating, that we're going to see renewable energy overtake coal as the predominant energy supply worldwide by the year 2020. Kevin, you look at this uh, from the perspective of investment and planning. So what is the biggest change that's coming in 2023? I mean, we hear all about this money being spent on incentivizing people to buy electric vehicles, for example. Is that the upshot? It's a big topic right now because Europe's not happy about the incentives we're giving domestic manufacturing. But really, we're coming into 2023 on the heels of big energy security changes, big risks 
to the existing capacity. When you talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the parts of the bill is that it keeps existing nuclear capacity on stream. The challenge is to keep clean electricity on the grid as you're adding new clean electricity to the grid and, and not losing it. And nuclear being clean. And nuclear is a clean emissions-free resource. And so there's no, there's no equivalent, by the way, for, for hydro. You can't use a tax credit to make it snow in the Sierra Nevadas. But in the meantime, we have to make sure we don't go dark before we go green. And so existing fossil resources are very front and center as we go into the year. Russian fossil energy exports, about 5% of global consumption, are now being shunned by the West. Mm -hmm. And that's on top of an investment wave that is slowed considerably after the demand collapse of the pandemic. And so we're going into the, the year short on, on conventional resources. That's a big challenge. But one of the criticisms of some of this legislation is that the payoff would be so much further down the line to something that Ben is describing as an immediate crisis. But you also hear from people who are in the marketplace that some of it just wasn't written well. Well, fast drafting of big spending is hard. And actually, the, the Democrats tried to get the bill done on a party line basis and do it in a hurry. That was also hard. What's ahead is harder still. They have to spend a lot of money and do it really fast. If Republicans take over Washington in 2024, some of the unobligated balances could be targeted. Now, the tax credits, about $270 billion of the $370 billion that are in the bill, if you look at history, the last long-term extension of solar tax credits was in 2008, and it was projected by the, the uh, Joint Committee on Taxation at about $3 billion over, over 10 years. Came in at four times that amount. The credits, a lot of them in the IRA, are mm -hmm. uncapped. There's no limit on them. And when the government hands out free money, it usually gets a lot of takers. So, no, not an immediate result, but potentially much bigger than forecast. But, Ben, when you talk about climate change, it sounds like it's one little box. But what you're talking about is financial investment. We're talking about geopolitics. We're talking about local government. It's a huge beat you have here, Ben. Um, but on the sliver of it with geopolitics, talk to me about why this spike in prices for gas and, and oil um, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine hasn't actually um, led quickly to going green. In fact, it made for dirtier energy investment, right, with coal. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of tension there because as those natural gas supplies were lessened to Europe, they had to turn to other forms of energy. So you did see a ramp up in coal use. There's actually a lot of analysts who are saying this eventually will more quickly accelerate this clean energy transition because you now have Europe looking at Russia and saying, we can't count on this in the future. So we need to more quickly transition to other forms of energy like renewables, so solar and wind. You guys mentioned nuclear power, and that's a really interesting one because you've had this real reconsideration of nuclear power because it is a form of clean and reliable energy. And here in California, you've actually seen there's one nuclear plant still operating in this state. It's called Diablo Canyon, and that was going to be mothballed, and they have reversed that decision. The governor came out and said, we need this because we don't have enough renewable energy yet to make this transition off of fossil fuels. But that's a difficult local government problem because people in this country often don't want nuclear plants in their backyard. They don't want mining and uh, that kind of local production happening. You're going to have this real tension all over this country if we want to mine these things domestically, these critical elements for the future of energy. Um, they are going to be in somebody's backyard. Uh, they are going to be in places where people may not want them. Uh, the question is, is that a trade-off versus getting it from a place like China and having them control that supply chain? 
So that's a real tension. That's a real tension for President Biden and his own party. Well, that's what's interesting is President Biden wants to go green, but it not only is, is coal and natural gas cheap, but when you go green, it also makes us in some ways dependent on China, as Ben just said there, for the elements that go into, for example, electric vehicle batteries. Kevin, how does that shift actually happen? How do you convince Americans that the drilling needs to happen in their backyard versus bringing these in from other places in Africa and China? Well, Margaret, it's a question mark whether we can. Uh, indeed, a lot of what we're looking at right now for the Biden administration is a tension between rapid deployment and the development of a domestic industry. And so solar panels are a big example of this. A lot of them come from China, and a lot of the, the solar material that goes into those panels comes from a region where there's forced labor allegations that are quite serious. And the question will be, how are, we, concerns. how are we going to, to balance human rights with the, the green agenda? And the, the administration has been struggling with that. But the other part of it, though, is that how are we going to get development inside the borders of the United States? Globalization made it easier to tighten environmental laws because industry went overseas. Now we're trying to bring it home. And the question will be, how can we do that in a way that's compatible with our stricter environmental rules? And just to underscore your point, the Department of Energy reports China controls 80 percent of rare earths. Those are the ingredients Ben was talking about in production and refining. That goes into generators for wind turbines. China controls 61 percent of global lithium refineries for battery storage and electric vehicles. You can't go green right now without China. It's true. And uh, deglobalizing was inflationary enough. Buying new stuff was inflationary. If you're going to put new infrastructure in place, it has a, as a financial cost. How are we going to do this uh, without going through China? Well, the answer is we can't, not right away. I want to ask you about pricing. Mm -hmm. We had these nightmare scenarios going back to fossil fuels of oil at like $125 a barrel in the new year. Are we past that? Are we still in, in that potential for a real severe spike? We are stuck in the middle of a structural shortage, Margaret. Uh, not only did we have underinvestment, but the, the shunning of Russian energy that we're doing now is leaving a hole in the supply picture. If gas isn't going into Europe on pipelines that it used to traverse, it's coming off the water from other countries. What are they burning instead? Well, some of them are burning oil. In other words, energy is tight everywhere because there's less of it in the world right now. As we look ahead, you ask, well, what's going to change? And we're seeing new infrastructure risks, new risks, that whether you're looking at, at Iran attacking Saudi infrastructure or the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage this year, the colonial pipeline hack here in the U.S., uh, or just the matter of fires, floods and freezes getting in the way of production. These challenges to supply are starting to mount. And so it's a pretty good expectation that we're going to be living in a time of scarcity for a while. It's changing our thinking, but slowly. We bought a lot of big cars when energy was cheap. And scarcity means high prices. I do mean high prices. All right. Kevin Book, great to have you here. Ben, thanks for joining us. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Pernan. Today's guests were Michael Gapin, the chief economist for Bank of America, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, former acting and deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, and energy analyst, Kevin Book. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation 
and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.